Travel Bullshit and Beyond, a podcast hosted by me, Marco Curis, bringing you a standards perspective of the film industry and an immigrant's perspective on America, the most fluffy, fun, pop bullshit you can tune into. Today we're discussing peasant Greek immigrant childhoods in Civiland, otherwise known as Canada, and breaking into Hollywood as such. Me is the lowly stand-in for Nicolas Cage, and my special guest, Alex Carter, is an accomplished actor, otherwise known as Apostoli Apostolopoulos. Alex Carter, we were always talking about the name. How we both changed our names, that we're both Greek from Canada. We're we're sellouts. We're both sellouts. Both of us are sellouts. Agreed. And we we cross borders. We basically mentally cross borders from being Greek immigrants and raising that Greek immigrant environment to being Canadian to try to be white. And from that point on, then we cross the actual border into the U.S. So it's like crossing twice, really. That's the way I kind of see it. You you have to leave your fustanella at customs when you come down. (laughs) That's kind of hard for me to do because, you know, I like to flaunt that shit up. So, <laughs> But I think it's funny that we have that. I still have my mother's um, Greek outfit when she used to be in the parade, in the March 25th parade. And that whole long dress with the beads and everything else, which is kind of like a carnival. I kept it. Um, I have my mother's it. trunk when she came from Greece with her name on it written with like a whiteout, like a painted on Salidas, you know, in 19... 19- 59, she came as a single girl from Greece to work as a domestic maid and a live-in maid in a Jewish home. That's what she came with, 25 years old, whatever she was at the time, you know, young girl. they never seen snow before. They all arrive at Union Station. You get out and there's a, a cab there, you know, it's a service, right, that brings these girls over much the same way I'm bringing, I guess they bring uh, Filipino nannies or, you know, anybody else. And... Um, they hand the cab driver a piece of paper, and the cab driver takes you to the house that you're going to be living and working in, and you, have, you don't even know where the hell you are, you know? So, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Boy, that's really tough. I remember my dad said when he got there, he was a worm picker. They used to pick him yeah. up from uh, from the, I don't know what, I think probably the Pape Station subway and yeah. uh, in, in a bus, you know, one of those like shitty buses with a whole bunch yeah. of Greek migrants. And yeah. he was worm picking at Young and Shepherd, where today's like multi-zillion dollar condos. I had no idea it was that rural at the time in 1958. Do you believe it? The worm picking was happening in the 70s because my aunt... And all my cousins, they were uh, they were black belt worm pickers, man. They would go, it would rain. Anytime it'd be rain, my cousin would be like, oh, I gotta go worm picking t- tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what a life, that's hysterical. I know. Some kids were at the roller rink, other kids were bowling. My cousin was worm picking. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go, uh, I'll meet up with you guys later. <laughs> worm picking, fuck, it's raining, shit, I gotta go worm picking. <laughs> That must have impressed the girls when you're 16, 17 years old. That's what happens when you're when you're poor. I mean, uh, growing up that way. I mean, what else? We didn't even have a car. I mean, I was the first guy to actually own a car because my parents never learned English like a lot of Greeks. They couldn't drive and they couldn't speak and they couldn't do anything. So they kind of were like were they were like invalids in their own environment. So they never progressed, and hence I progressed a lot less than most Greeks of our generation. And it really stunk my growth at the end of the day. And I didn't realize to how much until I became into my 20s and 30s and I realized how far back I was in life. 
I never read, as you know, I never went to school. I was just one of these guys who just kind of drifted in life. And I just thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? Whoever gave me a job, I just took it. And the only reason I was with Cage Wage is because they offered me a job. And that was basically it. It's not that I was pounding down the doors looking for a job. It was like whoever gave me a job, I would have taken five jobs. It didn't matter. I had yeah. no direction. You know, I had no structure, no direction. I just took anything. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you were like that. Uh, you were like that immigrant joke. Is like, well, you know, he has four jobs. He has six jobs. Like it's like a competition of like which immigrant could have more jobs is is the harder working. Because you certainly can't make a living from one. But I think I remember you in terms of Nick Cage years before. Mm -hmm. You saying to me if they ever did a movie with Nick Cage, I could be his double. I could like you said that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't I know what to mean it. I mean, I saw him no, films I and know, I was but, like, wow, that's a, I look like that guy when I was I, young. And I remember looking at you and going, you don't look anything like me. It's like, in my opinion. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You have your head up your ass. You do not look like Nick Cage. You're better looking than Nick Cage. You just look different. I just didn't see that. I didn't get it. So cut to, literally, I remember you calling me and saying they're doing a movie in Toronto and I got hired to be Nick Cage's stand and I'm like, get the fuck out. You were right, like you, somebody thinks you, I obviously don't know what I'm talking about. Somebody thinks you look like Nick, like Nick Cage and I was just, but you said it before it had ever happened. And I think that that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's a very, you know, interesting, Thing, that you would it anticipate is. that somehow. It's almost like an all about Eve kind of moment, like a premeditated moment, but it wasn't. It was just all by circumstance and by chance. And everything just kind of works in that bizarre world, Alex. Like bizarre. Then he was like, why don't you come and be my stand-in and fly around the world? It's like, what? Like, it was, it was, truly it was like a, a fictional film, but you were living it in a non-fictional, in, in reality. It was just bizarre. But in your particular case, it was even more ludicrous because you're doing, you're doing something that usually is... is A busboy would do. Not even a busboy. You're more like a dishwasher. <laughs> right? Because the busboy is the guy who helps the waiter. So the busboy is like a guest star or somebody who's coming in to do a couple scenes. You're not even on camera. You're in, fuck, you're in the you're in the kitchen. We don't. The owner doesn't even want to see you. Don't even fucking come on. We don't want to see you on camera. But you ended up getting on camera. You're like a busboy who was serving people and sitting down and eating in the middle <laughs> of, in the middle of dinner. It's like who's fucking eating over there? That's the busboy. What? Yeah, don't fuck with him because you know you're gonna get in trouble. And that was that was my impression when I showed up on set to visit you um, <clears throat> a couple times. But I remember the one time was with. Uh, Joel Schumacher, I think, was directing, right? We walk, we just kind of wander in and an AD or security or somebody obviously sees us and says, can we help you guys? Because it was downtown too, so they had a lot of big security presence and it was shoot, an all-night shoot. I said, yeah, we're here to see a friend of ours. And they're like, who's, who's your friend? Like, they didn't really know what we were doing. And, and uh, we said, Marco, he works in, he said, oh, Marco, yeah. Uh, yeah, hang on a second, we'll get, get something. And they're totally kissed our ass. We didn't even meet Nick. 
I don't even think you were like, do you want to meet Nick? I'm like, no, I'm just saying that with you. I had more clout than Nick did. I always felt like a producer though, Alex, on set. To me, I cared less. They treated you that way. Yes, and I I, I enjoyed it actually. And I felt like I was running the show. I knew exactly what was going on. Every shot, every scene, all the angles, all the camera things. I knew what Nick was going to do, if he was going to be off camera or on camera. I mean, I knew everything ahead of time. I was so on the ball, I felt like I'm running the show anyway. So it was, it was really funny because people were like, what do you really do? I'm like, I'm kind of like an on-set confidant. Yeah, I mean, and the, produ- the directors and producers really genuinely seemed to like you the times that I was there. Because I think you did do your job. You weren't somebody who was just, you know, riding somebody's coattails and acting entitled. Like, you actually, I, I saw you had your own marks. Mm-hmm. It's like, this guy brings his own marks. Little beanbag marks. And I was like, I thought it was a fucking joke. No, I had my own marks, Alex, because of the movements when you're in these locations. Um, They constantly have to change the marks. And you have to have the focus puller come in and change marks and tapes and chalk marks. So I'm like, you know what? He's got to run back and forth across the street. I'm like, I'm going to just change it myself. So I would tell them. They're like, oh, can you move two feet to your left and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I've got my marks. And so they would say, marking marco and i said marco's marking himself did you invoice them for that no, I, because i would think <laughs> i invoiced them for a lot of shit for photo yeah, doubling. Also, i did bring my own marks um and i used them uh 25 times today so that's gonna send you guys an invoice for that as well <laughs> it's uh, funny because when i would talk to you wherever you would be you'd be like well yeah we're in uh, Australia or whatever. I said, how is it? Shit. It's fucking hot. People are assholes. It's like, oh, next cut to like a year later. Uh, hey, man, where you been? Yeah, we were still just moving to Hawaii. Oh, why? How was it? Oh, shit. It's humid. People are fucking assholes. I hated it. Uh, where are you? <laughs> next year. Where are you? We're in uh, fucking uh, Istanbul. How's Istanbul? Oh, it's fucking brutal. It was terrible. It was cold. It was fucking the bugs everywhere. Never once did you ever fucking say, oh, man, I just got back doing three months and, you know, where, except when you went to Greece, that was fun for you, I think. But other than that, I was like, oh, my God, it's typical Marco. It's like every fucking thing was a nightmare, just a nightmare. I'm like, man. So I I always had this idea of like, oh, geez, I guess it's not it's not what it's cracked up to be. But then you talk to other people like, oh, it was great. We were shooting in London. For- <laughs> You're the only guy that just hated every fucking place. <laughs> well, the problem was, Alex, I'm going to defend myself for five seconds. You got to stand on set for I was on time. set for 12 to 15 hours a, a day. So if it was raining, snowing, hailing, humid yeah. bugs, mosquitoes, I ate all of it. It was in my face. Yeah. It was up my ass. It was in my yeah. mouth. And I had to chew it, swallow it, and lick it and lump it. So yeah. if I had to lie down in a war film in the dirt, for eight hours and having kicked sand kicked in my face all day by all these stunt guys in rehearsals you know at the end of the day i'm like fuck i just can't wait to have a normal office job because nobody else had to be in that position other than a potential understanding but i was like the big guinea pig because they had to test everything on me because i work for the superstar so it had to be done perfect and i had to make sure that that environment was safe for the star so yeah. if he has sand, he's got to know that it's going to be kicked in his face. So I've got to tell the stunt guys, don't kick this sand on his face. It's going to rip his eyes out. Yeah. Did I ever tell you, um, I worked with this guy, and he was Marlon Brando's driver. Brando would see, like, a hospital, and he'd say, let's go, let's drive over to that hospital. 
So you go to the hospital and you tell the guy, go in the emergency, tell him Marlon Brandle's here. I want to talk to one of the emergency doctors. So the guy would come out, he would kiss Brandle's ass. He'd say, hey, how long would it take to put on a fake cast on my arm? I want to pretend that I broke my arm and do like a joke when I get to set to, for everyone. And the guy's like, oh, Mr. Brando, I could do it, you know, I'll do it in 20 minutes. Great. So they put this cast on, they go to set. Brando's like, I broke my arm, I fell. And they're like, what the fuck? So the, the shooting is delayed. They got to switch scenes around. And they tell the driver, like, what did you, why didn't you fucking tell us? They, they waste half a day, right? And then Brando's like, ah, I'm just joking. And he breaks the cast and it's a big joke. But they've already fucked up the day. Next time, Brando's like, Come over to the hotel, go to the drugstore and get some hair dye. You're going to dye my hair blonde. He's like, I'm not, I'm a driver. I don't, I mean, get the makeup. Hair people do it tomorrow on set. He goes, no, I don't, I don't want them to do it. I want you to do it. The guy comes over, he dyes Brando's hair blonde. They go to set the next day. The producers are like, what the fuck is this? They waste another fucking day. Brando has to do his hair all over again. Like, he does all these shenanigans, always at the driver's expense. So finally the driver says to him, listen, Marlon, when you leave Montreal, I'm never going to work again. No one's going to hire me. And he says, listen, if they don't finish this movie this particular day, every day that they go over, they have to pay me $500,000 a day. You're going to help me make extra money. <laughs> <laughs> and they went over like four days and paid him like $2 million. And he told him at the end, he goes, we're in the Marlon Brandle business. In order for me to get more money, we're going to delay the shoot. And if I have to dye my hair, if you have to, we have to pretend I broke my arm, you're gonna help me do it. And he did. <laughs> oh my God. But this poor guy, man, because he took the shit all the time, all the time. You know, sometimes when you're in that second tier, you know, some of the shit flows down downstream and you you get it and that's what, you know, that's what you're getting paid for, but. I will say that none of that stuff ever happened with us. Nick was a serious perfectionist on all levels. Everything was to the minute, to the second. It was a dinner, a press release, a, a meeting. I mean, you know, if he had 40 minutes off in between, it's like I have 40 minutes off. They're like, okay, you can read this thing, do an interview on the phone, and then come back to set. There was no room for error or jokes. Nick was not a jokester. Everything was on the ball. He didn't pull Brando's or George Clooney's. Or he was on it day and night. Then let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Finish a job and go home. Brando was one of a kind. He was in the Marlon Brando business. <laughs> and you were the same. I'm in the, hey, listen, I'm in the Marco Curis business. That's what, that's basically what you were telling these guys, you know, on these movies. All right, let's talk about the Greek, the names. About our name changes, Alex. I mean, both of us have changed our names. I mean, I changed it legally in my passports. And uh, just, I, I wanted to reinvent myself under a shorter American Greek style name. That's why yeah. I went to Curis. I went from Evrimachos Gabriel Kyriakakis to yeah. Marco Curis. So I basically yeah. shortened Kyriakakis to Curis. How did you feel? I mean, you didn't even keep an ethnic name. I mean, you went completely wasp. Well, I just done, you know, equity waiver plays in LA and it's been studying acting, but I hadn't really started a career really. One of the agencies they said, oh, come on in. We'll talk to you right now. They came in and talked to me. They said, oh, there's an audition this afternoon for this, this Hershey's Kisses commercial. Why don't you go on that? You'd be really, you're right for that. So I went in on it and I got it. And they said, oh, we'll sign you, you know, or whatever. Like, we'll represent you. I said, great. And the next day they sent me in another commercial. They were referring to me as Alex A. They didn't even use my last name because they're like, they couldn't pronounce it. And Canada, Toronto, then especially, it's a very conservative city. It's a very conservative country. It's a very British kind of influence. I grew up understanding that and, and being aware of that 
we refer to it as wasp or munchie cake, but really it's this very big British kind of conservative way of being and thinking. And I think it affects aspects of the entertainment industry. I think that a lot of Canadians are very talented and other Canadians who are in positions to recognize that don't because they're not validated. And then they go to the States, they get validated by an American producer or network or whatever. And then it's like, oh, wow, he's Canadian. It's like, well, he was here just last week and you didn't give a shit. And I think it's rooted in that British kind of thing. So I got very bored and sick of the whole commercial you know, stuff. I wasn't getting acting auditions. And I, I missed doing plays. So I did a play. I found a play to do on my own. I went and I got it. The head of casting at CBC had seen the play. And the head of casting at CBC called somebody to ask who I was. And my girlfriend at the time was with this other agent. His name's Larry Goldhart. Anyway, so he came and saw the play and saw me. And then he wanted to represent me. So I'm like, I can leave this commercial and get with a real agent. So I went with him. But he's the guy that really changed my name. And that stuck. And he was, he was right. Like in many ways, in Toronto especially, anything that would make you a little different was enough to not bring you in. And he said that, and he was right. He said, listen, you're just starting. They just don't, they'll bring you in for ethnic roles. They, they won't even look at you. They won't, like, they won't think of you that way. It wasn't helpful to have a name that was an ethnic name if you weren't ethnic looking for people in a very conservative mindset. Unlike the U.S., I feel like there's a difference between how you're received. Some of the things that make you different are the things that they celebrate. Whereas back then, some of the things that make you different are the things that they fear. So I didn't understand any of that at the time. I just was like, you pick the name. He picked it, it ended up in print. I ended up started working and then I was off to the races with doing a lot more theater stuff. And then I started doing television and that was it. I never changed my name legally. The reality is I regret changing my name uh, even, even in that way because I figured that never really fit but it did give me an anonymity let me ask you about that then alex i mean so currently you you actually regret i don't regret changing my name at all um i'm i'm thrilled that i changed my name it was the right decision from 20 plus years ago and i legally changed all my documentation and i'm happy i changed it because i really wanted to keep it ethnic but keep it a little more americanized knowing that i was always going to work in the states and kind of bring myself forth but you went completely from greek to wasp you know, in your name, Alex Carter. So it kind of defined you differently. I went from Evrimachos Kiriakakis, which was, you know, unbearable, to Marco Kiris, which still sounds ethnic. And I look ethnic and it flows. But you went completely to Alex Carter and you look all American. You look like a football boy. Right. So I think what he was telling me, and he was right, it's like your name should look like you are because you're not sending mixed signals. I remember being in high school and grade nine and being out with some friends and being late to come back to class. And we all had to go to the office to get late admittance forms. And there was like this old British, Scottish, whatever the fuck she was, you know, <laughs> hag in the office. She said, like, what do you need? I said, you need this, you know, we're late. We need to get a late. She's like, what's your name? I said, uh, Al Apostolopoulos. She's like, oh God, spell it. A-P-O. S-T-O-L-O-P-O-U. Uh, slow down. P-O-U-L-O-S. The next guy. What's your name? James Papa Constantino. Oh, Jesus. Lord. 
Lord have mercy, spell it. <laughs> he, you know, he spells his fucking name, right? <clears throat> so we're sitting there. Last uh, guy, my third friend, like, what's your name? Gus Constantinidis. She goes, get the hell out of the office. Get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Apostolopoulos, Constantino, Constantinidis, she fucking blew her mind, blew her shit, this old hag. She couldn't never fucking experience anything like that in her life. I might as well have sla- we might as well have been slapping her across the face. So <clears throat> there's way too many vowels for her to comprehend. So <laughs> let me tell you something, man. I wouldn't trade growing up there and that place and that environment for anything. And I, you know, I go back to Scarborough and I, I spent my whole life trying to get out of Scarborough. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah, I spent every, you know, <laughs> fantasizing, <laughs> scheming, planning, how the fuck can I get out of here? How can I? And I was like a fucking gorilla that had been captured as an, you know, and put in a zoo. But I'm like, there's other animals like they they like the zoo. They're like, they're, they grew up here. I'm like, I don't, I don't fucking, I want to get out of here. But now I look back and I'm like, there's no other place I would have traded to grow up in there because it was so authentic that people were really real. And, um, and so, uh, I'll take that over fucking Beverly Hills. Oh my God. I'm, a, I'm, there's a big <laughs> high five with you right there. I can tell them all the time. Any day of the week, I'm man. so happy I grew up in Toronto as well. Beverly Hills is horrible. It's a terrible place. Or any other place. I mean, I, I named that place cause it's probably on the, uh, the complete opposite spectrum, but, but I, I know a lot of people in the States don't understand that in Toronto, it's truly a multicultural city and it's a new city and, and immigrants have come primarily in the 50s and 60s and we are as connected to the old country as you and here it's um, you know it's, it's, a, it's an extra generation or two I know what I read some of these scripts or some of these things and I'm like I know this story I know the story better than you My, I didn't speak English till I went to school and they're like oh so don't tell me about you know, these guys, it's an Italian family. I'm like, dude, hold your fucking breath right there because where did you grow up? Oh, uh, New York. Where did you, when did your parents come over from Italy? Oh, my great grandpa. I write. So shut the fuck up right there because my parents came over, you know, in the fucking 60s and I was born in the 60s. So, and all my relatives who came afterwards lived in our house. So mm-hmm. I know, I know more about your grandfather than you know about your grandfather. But in terms of, you know, what would I do differently? I, it was the right decision to get more, to get the auditions. And then when I got the auditions, I could get in there. The fact that it didn't change it to a shorter version of a Greek name, in a way, I felt that was a harder thing to do. But if I made this other identity, maybe that's the way I justified it. It's like, well, then that's not really me. I mean, that's a, that's a name. And it's true. It's, it's just a name. Who I was as an actor is the stuff that you see me do when I'm acting. The name is just a reference. It doesn't. It didn't mean anything. The name didn't never owned me. You know, I never pretended to be anything that I wasn't. It was just a name. And if it made you more comfortable, so that I could get in the office or get on the, you know, get then I don't give a fuck. It doesn't matter. Just pay me my money and let me act. I was so Greek that it was like. You know, I clearly wasn't somebody who was trying to escape my identity. Are you kidding me? Especially with your Greek I have a Kovaloi in my car. I have listened to Greek music. I play, I have a bouzouki in my fucking house. (laughs) I speak Greek. So you're not going to tell me what it is to be Greek. Mm -hmm. But um, I also didn't want to be just Greek. Well said, Alex, and thank you. And this concludes our conversation with Alex Carter, my buddy from birth. 
Ultimately, a Greek by any other name is still a Greek. The song of the day comes from the theme we've been in for this podcast, Greek. Nothing feels finer to me than bopping in the heat of the disco beat and dancing in the traditional Greek style of Sakapo Servico. The great disco bouzouki band from New York City produced many Greek classic songs in disco form to satisfy the Greco-Americans, all the while with me leading kicks in front of the dance line, arm in arm in Euro trash clubs back home. Opa! Thanks for listening to my first podcast. It is, of course, a trial and error scenario. This is basically the teaser one and perhaps one more as we already have many in the works that just need editing. We will relaunch come Labor Day weekend as I'm moving back home and regrouping in Toronto. However, you can follow me via social media and join the mailing list to stay up to date. Wish you guys all well and thanks for listening. Enjoy a safe and happy summer, guys. Cheers. Cheers.